Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com slash startup. Our guest today is Nick Mendel, partner at Amberstone. Amberstone invests at the early stages in entrepreneurs building breakthrough consumer companies. Some of their investments include Daily Harvest, June Shine, Bev, and Honey Mamas. Previously, Nick worked at Piper Sandler and was a co-founder of Trail Post Ventures. In this episode, we dive into how he thinks about portfolio construction, fads versus trends, and investing in companies located in tertiary markets. Without further ado, here's Nick. Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing well. Happy to be here, Mike. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Not at all. Thanks so much for taking the time, Nick. Really appreciate it. So tell me a bit of your origin story. I know your family was involved in the food and beverage industry, but what initially attracted you to finance and consumer? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's kind of crazy. I, I think it's part just kind of in my DNA. So I was actually born into a, uh, a restaurant family that you know, built out a, uh, a chain of restaurants, went public in 1998, uh, went through a go private transaction uh, in about 2001, and then did a bolt-on transaction you know, shortly thereafter. And just watching the, the mechanisms of finance at work got me super interested. And in 2008, I was lucky enough to graduate you know, into a recession, but found my way to a, a consumer-focused investment bank called North Point Advisors that you know, was a, a super tight-knit group of people um, with some incredible mentors around me that, that kind of just showed me the ropes around multi-unit restaurants as well as kind of the greater uh, CPG industry. And so, you know, that, that's kind of how I got into it. And then in the space and, and seeing kind of some of the brands and products that you work with, just the tangibility of it really solidified kind of the love of the space for me just to, to be able to walk around and, and look at restaurants that I'd help raise capital for or, you know, different brands in the supermarket that I could go and pick up off the shelf and, and, and eat and and enjoy on a daily basis, which is a really cool experience. I remember you telling me in our last call how, you know, you obviously have so much experience with your family and consumer, but you almost looked at consumers like a, a last resort. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, tr- I tried to get away from consumer. I'd seen kind of what what my dad had gone through from a restaurant perspective, and I, I wanted nothing to do with it. And I somehow just fell, fell into consumer. And, and I think something just woke up in my DNA that was like, yeah, this is this is the right place to be. This is the right fit for you. Makes total sense. So tell me a little bit. I know you I know you initially launched your own fund, Trail Post Ventures. How did how did that come together in that process? Yeah, I mean, it really came together at, at business school at USC. Really one of my my earliest friends was uh was a guy named Will Schmidt. I think, you know, the first week of school, the the finance club did a, a stock pitch competition and uh, I think it was like for 500 bucks and for, for an MBA student to win 500 bucks, that's like, that's a lot of ramen and a lot of beer for us. So we knew that we had some of the, the most experience within finance and could put together a really good stock pitch. And so kind of teamed up, ended up winning the competition, split the 500 bucks, got a beer and, uh, and quickly became friends. And through the two years of being at business school, we took a lot of classes together, but Beyond that, we we discovered we really had a shared affinity for the consumer space and particularly the early stage consumer. And um, you know, we were able to test a lot of our 
uh, a lot of the thesis that, that originally, or that kind of turned into Trail Post, we were able to test that thesis through a number of our classes. And when we left, we kind of went our separate directions. Uh, Will over to Beechwood, which is a family office out of Boston, focused on consumer. Me over to Piper Jaffray um, and their consumer investment banking group. But you know, we stayed in touch. We kicked around this idea and we kept honing it in and sharpening it. And, and finally, we just kind of took that leap of faith and uh, and started Trail Post together, which you know was an incredibly daunting experience, but also incredibly rewarding at the same time. I know that building out a track record is obviously really hard to do. Um, for folks that are looking for to raise their own funds since you've been through that process, what is some of your advice? I'll be the first to say that I've, I've lucked into where I am today. It's, it's been a mixture of, of getting to know the right people, doing some of the right things myself and, and working hard. But you know, if you're, if you're going to go create your own fund, start early, even if it's, it's, putting small checks to work, put them to work, you know, get, get those $25,000 checks, $10,000 checks into opportunities where you can really define your thesis, where you can talk through your investment process and where you can, you know, begin to start to build out that portfolio of companies that reflects where you ultimately want to invest. So if you're going to want to go down the tech route, make sure that you're investing in a vertical that you know, is going to make sense for you down the road. If you want to be in consumer, be investing in consumer brands, but be willing to put some checks to work early, even if that's, you know, teaming up with your parents, teaming up with, you know, a few of your friends that, you know, have gone over to different jobs and different companies, you know, just pull some capital together and start putting it to work and, and testing out your thesis. That makes a lot of sense. Do you think that it's also helpful too, when, even if you're writing small checks, but, you know, being able to, if you have like an outsized network of your own, really also prove to to LPs what your value add is and, and, and really how you've also helped founders beyond the check? Absolutely. I mean, I'll be the first to say that, that venture can't just be capital. You have to bring something else to the table, whether that is operational expertise, whether that's a, a network within the sales community that you can bring to the table, you, you have to offer something just beyond a capital contribution. And so demonstrating even with a small check that you can be helpful to a brand or helpful to a founder or helpful to a company is, uh, is incredibly beneficial. Talk to me a little bit about your transition to Amberstone and how that came together as well as your thesis there. You know, so I, I'd known Alex, one of the, the, the three founding partners, um, in addition to myself, uh, for over a decade now. And he, he and I actually started uh, really junior in our career when he was at Arlon and I was at North Point. Uh, we were just on opposite sides of the deal and you know, as bankers and, and private equity associates, he ended up doing the late nights together. And so we, we quickly forged a friendship. And then you know, over the years, we've just stayed in touch and, and actually have invested in a number of opportunities together over time. And he, he's a few years older than me, has a little bit more of an established track record, specifically with, with exits. And I think that, you know, one piece that's important to the track record question from earlier is that demonstrating your ability to drive actual returns to your investors is, is an incredibly important aspect of the track record. And so, you know, Alex really has that, that, that demonstrated ability and you know, when he saw that, that we were kind of struggling to raise capital and I was thinking through next steps, you know, he reached out to me, uh, said that he was really institutionalizing some of the investments that he had already done in a vehicle that was very reflective of you know, his ethos and my ethos around early stage investing and invited me to join as a partner. And you know, I, I try to keep my best poker face, but really it was just an opportunity that was too good to pass up with, a, uh, with two partners that are uh, 
incredibly smart, incredibly kind, and uh, incredibly driven. So, you know, really just the types of individuals that you want to work with for you know, the next 30 years of your career. Talk to me a little bit about your stage and um, how you're thinking about as well, like the uh, with the various stages from pre-seed to series A and uh, and some qualities and founders that you like to see. You're really one of one of the core tenets of, of Amberstone is that the friends and family and angels uh, area of investing that would look at pre-revenue or, or pre-product companies is extremely robust, extremely liquid and, and can help really get companies off the ground. The growth equity aspect is extremely robust and extremely liquid. Uh, you're seeing groups like VMG, ACG, TSG, uh, Elk Hatterton out of New York, and, and probably Carp Riley as well, you know, really populating that space and, and providing significant equity checks to companies that have grown, you know, call it north of 25, even 30 million in revenue is kind of where they're starting to look. But where you're seeing this real difficulty in raising capital is in companies that are kind of one to 10 million in revenue. And that's, that's really where we've decided to play. So, you know, we, we look at companies between one and 10 million in revenue, really looking to write, to raise their first institutional check. And, you know, for us, a sweet spot's really writing, you know, anywhere from a three to $5 million check. We'll go earlier than that and we'll go later than that. But we feel that that's kind of, you know, just through muscle memory and through companies we're seeing that that's pretty much kind of the most average check that we're seeing in the space right now. Cool. Talk to me a little bit about your diligence process and uh, some qualities you like to see in founders. So we, we take more of a private equity approach to diligence. We believe in a more concentrated portfolio of kind of six to 10 companies where we really take a deep dive into them. And I think that's one of the things that the three of us all connected over was, you know, less of, of this approach of spreading capital around in multiple different companies hoping for a two-tailed result, which I think is a fair amount of venture at this point where you're going to have a significant amount of zeros that are going to be mitigated by maybe, you know, one 30x return that can help return your entire portfolio. We're more around creating a portfolio that we believe is going to be more around a, a, a normalized return curve. Um, far fewer zeros, far fewer 30x's, but, you know, can we consistently return, you know, seven to nine x? Like, I think we can. So that, that's how we approach it, you know, where some groups might be able to say, we love the brand, we love the product, we're going to invest. Um, we really take a qualitative and quantitative approach to it that, you know, I think extends the runway of, of our diligence process out towards like eight, maybe even 10 weeks. Um, and in the COVID era, it's kind of pushing, you know, even 12 weeks now because Zoom is a lot more difficult to do diligence on, but not impossible. You know, when it comes to to founders, I mean, I don't think there's any any secret sauce to founders. It's it, we've we've worked with first time founders, and we've worked with you know founders that this is their third time you know third time third rodeo, so to speak. I, I guess what we really look for is is confidence in your your brand, your vision, and your product, and the ability to to want to execute on that. But I think that confidence needs to be tempered with humility. Um, there are I'll be the first to admit that there are things that I don't know and that I constantly am reaching out to others to learn about. And I would expect the same out of the founders that, that I'm investing into. Um, it's knowing your limitations, knowing what you don't know, and being willing and, and prepared to accept help when offered from those that have an expertise that you don't have. That makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you mapping that out in terms of investor, I mean, of, of founder qualities. And also, yeah, I mean, I've had a number of investors on here say that it's really hard to establish conviction over Zoom with founders. But are you are you seeing because of Zoom and, 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 and I've had this 
go both ways on the show in prior conversations with investors. Are you seeing more deals because it's a lot easier to meet with founders on Zoom or are you not seeing as many deals than pre-COVID? I would say deal flow has been consistent. Yeah, it's, it's been consistent. I think the food and beverage space has been a, a lone bright spot within the COVID era. You know, people are continually purchasing. They're, they're looking for new brands. They're continuing to go to the store or utilizing online platforms to order. And so you know, we, ha- we really haven't seen a decline in deal flow. I would say it's it's slightly harder to to meet with founders and to get a true read on them when you're not sitting across the table from them. However, I will say that I think Zoom as a tool is is incredibly valuable because I mean, it, the world isn't kind of aseptic. It's not this this planned meeting for coffee where you can have everything mapped out. It things will go wrong in an investment and things will go wrong in your day-to-day and so you know, watching how on a Zoom meeting, a, a CFO or a CMO or a CEO, you know, when their cat walks across the keyboard or their kid comes in screaming or, you know, they're having technical difficulties, watching them manage through that and how they react as an individual, I actually think can be very telling. And, and you know, we've, we've successfully closed a deal in the COVID era. Uh, we closed it on June 2nd and we did 95% of our diligence on two to three hour Zoom meetings over the course of you know, four to six weeks and we're able to get it across the finish line. And I think you know, going through that process, we have an incredibly tight relationship with that management team now because of Zoom. You know, no one I don't think has ever brought that up before about when you have interruptions in the Zoom call, how that how that also has um, affected just how the entrepreneur actually manages through that situation. Because I've seen on the other way, like I had a Connie Mechabella who um, is an investor at a Kindred, and he was saying that um, even something simple as like eye contact, showing eye contact, um, is really difficult and challenging on Zoom because if you meet somebody in person and they don't happen to have eye contact, that might just be something about them personality-wise and it's not really an offense to, to, uh, to you. It made me think because he was saying how on a Zoom call, you don't know if they if you actually have their full attention. I, it, listen, Zoom's exhausting. I will say that. Like, I, I have Zoom fatigue and I, I've started to take just regular phone calls at this point where I can throw on some headphones and walk around outside and just talk to somebody. But I, I think people are getting good at it. And you know, it's just something we're gonna have to work through. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. So when you're evaluating opportunities, how are you thinking about optimizing profitability versus growth and as well growth margin? I think we're going through a a fundamental change right now. I think, you know, the past few years have really been kind of a a grow at all cost few years. Capital was raised at at higher and higher valuations. And and I, I think Oftentimes it was utilized in a manner that, you know, frankly, the Amberson team doesn't agree with. And that namely was, you know, putting a dollar of capital raised to drive 50 cents to the top line. Whereas we fundamentally believe that, you know, you should be able to raise a dollar to drive at least two, if not three or more to the top line. And so, you know, I think that that's the transition we're seeing today. Profitability is, is extremely important, but I will say that building an organization, particularly in CPG, is, is cost cost intensive it, it, it requires capital and and we we totally understand that and we're going to see kind of negative cash flow from time to time particularly in the early days but i would say that having that path to profitability is is incredibly important to us and that really starts with having a viable gross margin so 
you know, for us at the end of the day, strategic acquirers are probably looking to plug you in. And these are kind of the, the general mills or the Kellogg's of the world. They're going to plug you into their existing structures. And, you know, that really leads to situations where the costs below gross margin will disappear. Your SGNA is going to go away because you're going to become part of a, a larger organization. And so, you know, for us, maximizing gross margin is going to be the most important thing we can do because ultimately that will lead either towards profitable situations or make you a more viable acquisition candidate. I mean, this reminds me a little bit of my conversation with Logan Langberg at Imaginary. You know, you have a lot of great exits that, you know, maybe in like the 300 to $500 million range to a, a strategic and like a General Mills, as you gave it as an example, you don't really have a ton. You might not have a ton of like unicorns or, you know, exits in the in the billions. And so it's a funny thing where you need to grow big enough where you have to be attractive to a General Mills so they can gain portion of market share that it makes sense for their brand. And at the same time, though, you're not really going to be able to raise a buttload of capital because you aren't re reaching like going to be having those billion dollar exits. I think there are aspects of that that are right. I think namely one of the things that I don't agree with is that somebody like a General Mills is, is going to acquire someone to acquire market share. I think today you're acquiring someone to acquire a tribe. And that's, that's really one of the ways that Amberstone views the world. It's, it's, you know, Alex always provides a really good example where we're never going to see another Cheerios again, where 200 million people across the United States all go down the same cereal aisle, agree that Cheerios is a delicious product and purchase it. Those days are done. So now we're seeing, you know, groups of, of eight to 20 million individuals that all are looking for something slightly different, but have found their own niche and their own tribes to be a part of that products now are specifically being geared towards. And I think, you know, that, that provides an opportunity for somebody like a General Mills or a Kellogg's to acquire these companies to acquire those specific tribes, and then can subsequently add other products that target those tribes. But inherently those are going to limit the the size of the potential market that you're going to be able to address so you know those 500 million dollar companies are going to be few and far between but the 200 to 250 million dollar companies I, I think are going to be what is going to become kind of the median uh, for the industry going forward thank you that's really really helpful i know that i know that we talked before about you know some of the differences that, and 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 maybe part of your job of, of how you're thinking about this is assessing the difference between a trend and a fad listen if i can know exactly what a trend was and exactly what a fad was 100 of the time i would be a lot better at my job but this is there's definitely something i'm still it's constantly evolving for me but you know, basically for me, I think of fads that are something that lasts like maybe a year to three years. You know, I think as kids, we've all kind of lived through, or maybe I'm kind of aging myself at this point, but you know, I live, live through pogs, I live through sticker collections, I live through beanie babies. You know, those are things that were kind of flash in the pan and they can definitely drive a quick buck to the top line. But, you know, trends are something that are a bit like a, a, a locomotive. They, they're going to start off slow but they gain traction and they continue to gain traction over time. You know, for me, I think examples of this are the early innings right now, the move away from, from alcohol. You're looking at better for you alcohol. You're looking at non-alcohol alcohol, companies like Gia or, uh, or Seedlip. Uh, you're looking at plant-based eating and you're looking at clean ingredient decks, things that are easy to understand, easy to pronounce. Those are definitely trends. And I think 
you know, while fads can drive a quick buck, trends create enduring brands. And that, that's really kind of what we look for is, is the opportunity to create enduring brands based on some long-term trends that we believe we're identifying in the market and, and kind of getting the right product and the right team and the right branding behind those trends. Uh, will ultimately lead to uh, more successful outcomes for everybody. How are you thinking about habits as well? You know, we're living in, in these COVID times. People are becoming a lot more comfortable buying physical goods online, and it's becoming the only way to do so. I mean, it's interesting just, you know, as a podcaster and, you know, talking to brands, it seems like I never actually know how well the brand is doing until I talk to them, meaning that if they have a lot of exposure in retail, then D 2 C tends to have not, even though it's been up, it hasn't offset those loss in retail sales. But if they don't have a lot of exposure to retail, they're doing, they're flying high and doing extremely well. But wanted to know just how are you thinking about like e-commerce when things roughly go back to normal and, and stores open again? I think any brand that we look at right now has to have an omni-channel approach. They have to be doing you know minimum maybe ten to fifteen percent of total revenue through an e-com channel just as a, a starting point. But you know, I'll say this, I think within CPG, we run promos all the time. One of the patterns you see in a promo is you're going to get this significant spike in product sales. You know, let's say it's a, a two for one or, you know, uh, 50 cents off, whatever you're going to offer. You're going to see a spike in sales. When that promo ends, you're going to see a return back from the peak of the spike. But if executed correctly, you see that that promo, the new normal is, is higher than the initial starting point. And I think what we're going to see with COVID is, is very similar to that. You're going to see this spike in, in trial of, of online purchasing habits, whether that's through Instacart or Good Eggs or Sunbasket or Thrive, whatever it might be significantly more people are going to try it as we emerge, you know, 12 months, six months, eight months, whatever the, the month count is until we get out of this, as we emerge out of it, I think people are going to return back to their original shopping habits, but the online shopping, the group of people that we're going to be shopping online will be higher than we initially started. So I think, you know, last I looked at something like five or 6% of total online grocery sales were online pre COVID my estimate is post COVID, we're going to see kind of probably low double digits when this is over. And that's, that's a huge shift on a dollar basis. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's, it's something to be really excited about. And I think brands that, that can still play on both the physical retail shelf, as well as the digital shelf are going to be the ones that ultimately come out of this best position for success. We probably touched on this a little bit when we were talking about trends and fads, but what are some consumer trends right now that you're really excited about? I mean, definitely better for you alcohol. You're seeing a generational shift that started with millennials and is accelerating with Gen Z of basically not drinking alcohol. You know, dry January has now become, you know, dry 2020. And you're seeing, you're seeing that manifest itself in both lower alcohol and cleaner alcohol beverages from, you know, maybe craft seltzers that are starting to appear with groups like Two Robbers or Ashland or, you know, somebody like a, uh, there's a group out of Texas that I can't, that I'm blanking on right now, but you're seeing those types of brands come up. You're seeing hard kombucha brands like Juneshine and Boochcraft um, capture that end of the market. And then you're also seeing non-alcoholic beverages that are 
are replacing the experience of drinking alcohol. So part part of drinking alcohol isn't necessarily to get drunk. It is to interact with friends. It's to have that social occasion where having something in your hand is is all you really want. You don't necessarily want to get drunk. And so now we're seeing products coming out that that directly address that where you know you're seeing something like a hop tea out of out of Boulder, you know, really take on a, a beer drinking opportunity with a non-alcoholic beverage. So you know, that's incredibly exciting to me. Um, I think we're still in, you know, the very first innings of, of plant-based eating. Um, I think, you know, not just around meat, but, you know, a whole slew of different products from cheese to, to milk, to uh, pizza, to just a lot of products that are ubiquitous in our day-to-day life right now are going to find their plant alternative in the next few years, and they're going to be delicious. And then I think finally, branded e-com opportunities that, you know, take products that might have been once commoditized and really turn them into branded opportunities that can capture this new subset of shoppers that's looking for very high quality meat or very high quality vegetables in a branded situation delivered directly to them, I think is going to be something interesting as well. Yeah. I mean, all those sound really, really fascinating in the, in the uh, uh, food and beverage space. I mean, I even, I, I remember when I fought, saw my first commercial of, I think it was Miller of a non-alcoholic beer and I was just stunned. Totally. And you're seeing, you're seeing some really cool brands. I mean, any beer used to be like, it used to be terrible. It's, I mean, some NA beer still is terrible, but like now you're seeing groups like Partake and uh, and maybe Athletic Brewing as well that are creating like a non-alcoholic IPA that tastes neck and neck with its alcoholic brother. It's, it's really fun to see. I want to pin you a little bit against New York and have a little bit of fun. So I know you're, I know you're based in uh, San Francisco. Your, 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 your fund's based in San Francisco. I had on Will McClellan, who's the managing partner at Elizabeth Street Ventures. And he believes that if you want to build a consumer company or focus on consumer, New York is the place to do that, not San Francisco. What are your thoughts around this and some of the differences that you think about New York and San Francisco? Well, listen, Will's not wrong. He's not. It, it, New York's an incredible market. It, it, it really is. And it's a really special place. And if you can be successful there, you definitely have an opportunity to be successful everywhere else in the country. Where I think the two of us probably differ on our approach is that you know, I don't think New York or San Francisco necessarily have a foothold on the consumer market. I think it's incredibly diffuse. And you're seeing founders that are successful from multiple cities across the U.S., be it, you know, Columbus, Ohio, or Portland, or Seattle, or New York, or San Diego, or San Francisco, or Los Angeles, Austin, Boulder. The, the consumer ecosystem is not centralized around one area like it might be with, you know, with Silicon Beach or Silicon Alley or uh, Silicon Valley. Like there aren't three epicenters. There are multiple epicenters where brands have emerged from so many different places across the country and they all bring really interesting aspects of that part of the country to their brand and help to introduce other parts of the country to that part of the country. I, I really think that the consumer space is, is one of the most equal spaces in the venture community right now. I actually agree, to be honest with you. I mean, when I asked Kiva this question, he actually made the argument that it was actually LA and not New York. That should be, that's actually a lot more consumer. No, Kiva, I, Kiva, Kiva's a good friend and somebody that, that I, I respect like more than, than 
than almost anybody. I mean, he's just a really good person and he's an incredible investor. I, I would argue that, that even LA, I think my core argument and the way we look at it at Amberstone is, is you can't have a product that only survives on the edges of the United States, that only survives in the major city centers. For us, we're looking for products that not only are going to be successful in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, but that the consumer in Toledo, Ohio is going to enjoy. I mean, I, I don't think if you were to tell a consumer in Toledo, like, listen, here's a chocolate bar. It has 30 ingredients in it that you can't pronounce, but it tastes really good. Or here's a chocolate bar that has five ingredients in it. It tastes just as good, but you can pronounce everything in it and it's not going to give you a heart attack and spike your blood sugar. I, I would argue that that consumer in Toledo, Ohio is going to be just as interested in that product as the consumer in New York. And so by offering them a product that can appeal across socioeconomic boundaries, across geographic boundaries, and be successful, not just on the edges and the coasts of the United States, you, you end up having a much larger addressable market to put your product into. You don't, you're not going to be just in the Whole Foods and the Sprouts of the world. You can be in Whole Foods, Sprouts, Wegmans, Kroger, uh, Mariano's out of Chicago, um, you know, H-E-B. Uh, you can play in Publix in Florida. Like you can play in all of these different marketplaces if you have a product that has full geographic appeal. Do you take a look at founders that are located in like secondary and tertiary markets and what's some advice for them that they are building a venture backable business, um, a consumer business, but they're not in a huge big venture ecosystem. First off, one answer, one word, absolutely. Yes, we are, we're agnostic about it. Like, do you have a good company? Do you have good deal flow? Are you in Park City, Utah? Great, we're gonna come talk to you. Are you in San Jose? Fantastic, we'll drive down. Are you in Toledo, Ohio? Cool, I mean, I haven't been to Toledo since my dad graduated high school there, but yeah, we're, we're happy to look at, at secondary and tertiary markets. I, I think, a lot of that has to do with that. Yeah, there's a few centers of consumer. I think LA and 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 New York, as 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 your two previous uh, guests have, have alluded to, are are certainly centers. I think Austin is a good center. I think Boulder is a fantastic center and probably the birthplace of the natural food movement. Portland would probably argue with that, but the consumer industry, by its nature, has already created the ability for founders to be anywhere that they need to be. So we've seen products come out of Missoula, Montana and Bozeman. We've seen products come out of Salt Lake City and Park City. We've seen products come out of the major city centers. It, it, it really, it doesn't matter about location. With that being said, the centers of capital still, I believe, remain pretty entrenched which is a shame, but, you know, and, and particularly in the COVID era, when you don't have Expo East, Expo West, the fancy food shows, you know, some of the, the conferences that would be out of Chicago, maybe something like a Snackspo, it, it's tougher to be a brand from a secondary or tertiary market and get yourself out there. But I would say, you know, much the same way that I, I don't think funds should have an ego and should not be afraid that if you like a product or you like a brand and you want to learn more, go ahead and give a cold outreach. I would say that the majority of partners at funds are really approachable, particularly in the consumer space. Like we're really nice people, promise. And there's nothing that I think we enjoy more than meeting new, new founders and, and seeing new brands and trying new products. Like this is why we're all in this. We're, we're in this because we truly love products and 
and enjoy what we do and watch watching these new brands grow and develop. So, you know, I would say the advice that I have if you're in a secondary or tertiary market and don't have a, a good connection is, is get on the internet and start looking, try and figure out, you know, who invested in a deal that you respect who a company that you like, a company in your space, maybe your competitor, who were the investors there? Because I guarantee you there's a subset of investors that missed out on that deal and would still look at another deal. That's a great piece of advice. What's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? I think mine's specific to consumer. I think this space is still developing when you look at kind of the ecosystem of early stage consumer. There's some really good seed brands, seed stage funds coming out. There's some really unbelievable growth stage funds that have really paved the way for a lot of people. I think this, this kind of space between one and 10 million is still relatively uninhabited. And one of the things that I would like to see is more cooperation amongst the funds. Um, so, you know, I would love to, you know, I think you know, somebody like Anna, who's been on your show, like would love to invest with her Like Kiva 100% would love to get into a round with Kiva sometimes the economics just don't work. So trying to figure out kind of the the mechanisms around how to club a deal together, make the economics work for everybody and, and get a lot of really smart people around the table would be one thing that I would try to change. Exactly. I mean, it reminds me too, just in terms of the opportunity at like the one to 10 million, it's something as well I, I, I talked to Logan about and that's why he came downstream. What's, what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? I mean, personally, like it's not... It's just a reminder book. I read, uh, I read A River Runs Through It every year. Not so much because it gives me any like keen insight into the professional world or, or anything like that. It's just a, a shared book my dad and I both love. And you know, over the past you know, decade and a half, I mean, my dad's developed into you know, not just a mentor, but, but an incredibly close friend of mine. And you know, just to, to share that bond over a book and, and, and kind of remind yourself and ground yourself in something is a good reminder every year just to, to kind of take a step back and, and, and see what your priorities are. So, you know, I'd say from, that's from the personal side of things. You know, on the professional side of things, I just read you know, Principles by Dalio and just blown away. I mean, a lot, I'll admit, he's a smarter human being than I ever will be, but, you know, just emulating some of the lessons and, and some of the things that, he's put in place, you know, certainly can, uh, can help guide your own decision-making processes. Love it. Well, listen, if you want, if you want to as well, we're, I'm on a Slack channel with a bunch of fellow nerds in the consumer space, the red rising series, you got to add it to the reading list. It will add zero value to your professional world, but it, the entertainment value is unparalleled. This is, this is great. You're going to have, you're going to have three books to your name. What's, what's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? So we recently invested in a company called Honey Mamas out of Portland, Oregon, refrigerated cocoa truffle bar that, that is just hands down one of the most delicious things I've ever tried. You know, when we looked at it, you know, we really look at it through the lens of, of quantitative and qualitative approaches. So, you know, from a qualitative perspective, Christy, the founder is exactly the type of founder you want to partner with. She is incredibly caring, nurturing to her entire company, and has grown this product where it is today. But she also had the humility to step aside and, and hand over the reins to the current CEO, Jared Short, who is, he's just one of those CEOs that you know is going to be able to lead this company from, you know, 5 million to 105 million. Like he's just that type of individual. 
So that, that, that's kind of one of the qualitative aspects. You know, and then, then brand affinity is another thing we look at. And you know, the engagement level that we saw for this product was out of this world from just both social to, you know, even finding them at fancy food and, and watching, you know, two to three individuals run up and be like, oh my God, I love your product. Like, and they weren't paid actors, I promise. You can't buy that. You can't put capital to work and attract that type of, of tribal affinity for a product. You know, and then from a quantitative perspective, industry leading gross margins, industry leading velocity for its category. And, you know, basically for every dollar that they've raised, they've been able to drive $4 to the top line. And so that, that type of capital efficiency, it, it speaks volumes to the management team, to the product, to the velocity. It's a way to tie everything together from our perspective. And, and, and they really had all of that. And then, you know, for us, what, what truly excites us about it is, you know, it's, it's still, a, if you buy the product today, it, it's still a, a hand-wrapped product out of Portland. It's got a, a fair amount of Portlandia still associated with it. And, you know, the opportunity now to, to potentially rebrand the product a bit, to introduce new sizes and new flavors, you know, and really to, to penetrate deeper into the natural channel. You know, they only had about 45% penetration in natural and, and to move into conventional as well. It, it, it's exciting to see the white space ahead of this brand and, and to have the opportunity to partner with such a strong management team to help, you know, really walk side by side with them uh, and, and guide them towards you know, uh, hopefully kind of like a, a perfect bar type of outcome for them. Love it. I hadn't heard of Honey Mamas before this, so I will certainly have to check them out. That's awesome. What's one piece of advice that you have for founders building consumer businesses? One, one's a quantitative piece and one's a qualitative piece. You know, I, I would think on, on the quantitative side, get your unit economics in line from the get-go. You know, too often we hear the story that, oh, with, you know, with scale, our margins are going to expand from x to x plus four and you can't rely on that you can't rely on on that being the story i think you need to rely on having a margin profile and a, a unit economic profile that is strong out the gate and by scaling your brand that's kind of whipped cream on top that can take you from 35 percent gross margin to start with to 40 percent. like great that's that's awesome but being at that starting point is 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 something you should strive to do before you even get the product on shelf. And then qualitatively, I would I would say it's it's really around, you know, building authenticity in your brand. I think today's generations are looking for authenticity and what they're purchasing. They ultimately are going for brands that coincide with their ethos, their own personal ethos, and they're they're shopping. You know, their ethos is pushing their dollar purchases. It's pushing their wallet decisions, and. If you aren't authentic from the get-go, these generations, the youngest of the generations are going to see right through you and they're not going to purchase you. They're going to go purchase your competitor who has kept that authentic story, who has kept that founding story and, and runs it through everything that they do from their marketing to their branding to the product that they produce on shelf. Like Ultimately, brand authenticity is, is one of the most important drivers of what you're going to build. And, and one of the most important things that creates an enduring brand for you. I completely agree. I think that those are excellent advice and I appreciate you breaking it down with uh, the quantitative and the qualitative. I'm sure that's really helpful for folks. That's certainly helpful for me and, and my learnings. Well, Nick, this has, been, this has been great. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, happy to do it, Mike. Thanks for having me. 
And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Nick. I really appreciate him taking the time. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.